We are in the year of 2021, which means this is the year of becoming. This year we wanted to focus on, Lord, what is it that you want us to do? That we might be able to adjust our lives, align our lives, that we might become all that you desire us to be. So we grabbed a number of different books of the Bible that we thought might lead us there. And one of those was the book of Esther. That's what we're walking through in this series. And we entitled the series, The Queen's Gambit. This is a chess move where you make a sacrifice up front in order to get a greater blessing later on. Because of that, we've been kind of capturing this phrase, seize the moment. There are times when God asks you to take a risk. There are times when God asks you to make a sacrifice right now for a greater blessing for the kingdom, to make a sacrifice now for a greater blessing in your life. And we need to lock on those moments, seize on those moments, not allow those moments to get away from us. Because sometimes they just pass and God doesn't come back through to ask you again. We want to make sure that we are in an instant obedience mindset. That when God says a whisper, we say, yes, sir, I'm on my way, right off the bat. So we're gonna be walking through this story of Esther, and maybe if you didn't get a chance to listen to the first one, those are always free online to be able to go back and, and catch up, but basically you have a, a lady that no one knew, a young lady that wins a beauty contest to become the next queen of the Persian Empire. God is going to use her in such mighty ways, but at this point, she still doesn't know how special she is. She was raised by her older cousin, a man by the name of Mordecai. He's a good guy in this story. And then we're going to meet our first really bad guy. We've already met the king. He's kind of messed up. But this guy's like really bad. His name is Haman. And we're going to learn a little bit about him. So as I lead you into the fill in the blank here in a moment, I want to begin by sharing some thoughts with you that might get very personal. As a matter of fact, the whole entire message is really going to kind of get into your head, get into your heart and start commenting on some stuff and you're going to wonder whether or not I'm following you around. Right? And the reason why that is, is I'm going to be talking about stuff that is common to human beings. And once again, I'm going to be walking you into some territory that's going to ask you to look at yourself, even some of the parts that you don't like about yourself. I want to caution you up front that in Jesus, you can look at the difficult stuff because he has already deemed that he loves you, even knowing stuff about you that you don't even know yet. You will never look in and discover something that God has not already seen and already deemed you to be his child. We don't have to have a fear. We don't have to have a shame when we're walking into some of this stuff, but we do have to have some sober wisdom, yeah? We got to look at ourselves honestly. Some of that yucky stuff, some of that good stuff, we got to look at it all. So that's where I want to begin. You see, I have known over my time in ministry many gifted Christians whose dysfunction in their personal life hijacks their ability to minister well. This is very difficult. Let me give you an example. 
I've known many gifted evangelists. Now, I have to tell you, I am not a gifted evangelist. So I, I have high respect for any gift that's different than my own, right? And when I mean a gifted evangelist, I'm talking about somebody that when they share the gospel, it moves people. Like for the first time, those people are like, man, I want to know more about God. I want to know. They are people that can kind of walk boldly into situations and say, do you know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Like those kind of folks. And unfortunately, I've known a lot of them that are jerks. And it's like, whoa, what is going on here? Like you have this incredible gift, but when you start talking about it, you carry that sign on the street, you have whatever sign you're holding up, it sure doesn't look nice to me. It looks like you got an awful lot of anger issues. It looks like you got an awful lot of dysfunction in your past, and you're like venting it out on everybody. You're blowing people up. I appreciate you love the Lord. I appreciate you want to share the gospel. What I'm telling you is the pipeway by which the Holy Spirit is coming through you doesn't feel loving. You see, when we do not heal from our wounds, and we try to just, I'm going to stuff it and move on. That's not a thing, right? I mean, it, all you did was just close your ears, build a wall, and run. The problem is, it's all still pouring out behind you, and we are all in your wake of chaos. Because there was no healing. There was no restoration. You just don't want to deal with that part of it. There was wounds, there was grief, there was loss, there was pain, and you'd kind of go, well, it hurts so bad, I don't want to go back there, or even a mistake that you made, or whatever, and you say, I'm just going to go forward. I don't think we can do that as human beings. I think we have to pause, take it to the Lord, get it healed and restored, and then we can move forward. That's the only way we're going to advance the kingdom of God in the most healthy fashion. Do you realize that the Bible says every single child of God, and when I say child of God, I'm talking about those that have been rescued by Jesus Christ. I'm talking about true believers. I'm talking about legitimate Christians. That the Bible says that every single one of you that have given your life over to Jesus Christ have had the Holy Spirit placed in you and you have been qualified to be a minister of the gospel. Do you realize every single one of you is an active ambassador for heaven? You are equipped, you are called, you are anointed to be a conduit through whom the Holy Spirit will change the world. Every single one of you, it doesn't matter whether or not you have a title, it doesn't matter whether or not you're paid for it, it means that you are a minister and God loves to move through you. But if that pipeline is jammed up with all sorts of dysfunction and pain, it ruins our ability to minister well. Here's what I'm talking about. Being an active Christian means loving those that are hard to love, yes? Isn't that what being an active Christian means? It's what Jesus did, it's what we do. The problem is, when we live under hurt, grief, and bitterness, our reservoir of love is empty. And we tend to be unloving on our bad times. I would suggest to you that most of us keep our dysfunction in check on our good days. It's the bad days when they come pouring out. Here's another example. Being an active Christian means being patient with others, right? But when we're angry, 
when we're scared, when we're stressed, we lash out. We have short fuses. Why is that? What's causing it to bubble up? Being an active Christian means forgiving those who have wronged us. But when we hold on to that woundedness, when we are lost in our grief, when we don't allow the extreme forgiveness of God to flow in our lives, we can't forgive. Being an active Christian means being others-centered. But when we crave affirmation more than the heart of God, we make everything about us. When we feel abandoned, we feel betrayed, we feel lost, we feel insecure, that gravity of the situation bends everything inside, and we can't focus on others. Ultimately, it creates an extreme bias in our decision-making. Here's what I mean. Every single human being is biased. You know that, right? You know that you're biased in your decision-making because you are the sum total of your experiences. So if I ask you any given situation, you're going to tell me what you know. You're going to make a decision off what you know, but you don't know everything. So you are biased down one route, but when we have extreme dysfunction, that bias becomes a blockade, and it completely ruins our ability to make good decisions. Let me give you an example. And I don't want you to raise your hand here, right? Because the person's probably sitting next to you, and that would be awkward, okay? But how many of you have had a friend that is single whose picker is broken? Here's what I mean. I'm talking about they are single, and everyone they date wears a red flag. You understand what I'm talking about? Like they are draped in a red flag. You're like, oh, no, stay away from that person. What are you talking about? And they're like, why? They're really nice. You're like, no, they're a serial killer. What are you doing? It's like there's an inability to discern right from wrong, good from bad. It's like they're, they're just randomly choosing. But that's not true. You see, their dysfunction of their past, whether they've been treated improperly or whether they've been trained improperly or whether there's been hurt or they don't feel like they're worth it or whatever it is, they're projecting that through their lens and they're making decisions off of that matrix. And that's dangerous. Here's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you on the app. If you fire that up, maybe if you're online, you can fire up that app and fill it out along with us. Making decisions from a wounded place is always harmful. Making decisions from a wounded place is always harmful. You will be wounded in this life, but in Jesus Christ, you may be healed. Amen? You will be offended in this life, but in the name of Jesus Christ, you can be healed from the offense. You will have hardship, you will have pain, you will have loss, but in the name of Jesus Christ, that can be restored. That's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you there is hope. I'm telling you that you don't have to operate in your dysfunction. I'm telling you that that which was taken away from you, God can restore and actually make into one of your greatest assets. That's what I'm telling you. But we have to have a plan to get there. We have to figure out how are we going to heal. We're about to read a portion of the story in Esther where we're going to meet a super dysfunctional bad guy. And it is going to wreck his world. Would you turn with me to Esther chapter 3? Esther chapter 3 verse 1. If you're reading out of the ESV, it is page 411. And if you need to find it in your Bible, maybe you're new to this, drop your Bible open in the middle. You're probably going to hit one of three books, Job, Psalms, or Proverbs. 
back up to the left, right before Job is a little book called Esther. That's where we're going to be. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, that's the king of the Persian Empire, he promoted Haman the Agagite. What a horrible people name. If your historical people name has the word gag in it, just don't tell anybody. Cool? We'll move on. Promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were before him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, that's Esther's adopted dad, her older cousin, did not bow down or pay homage to Haman. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress? Why are you breaking the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Let's pause for a moment. What's up with Mordecai? Mordecai's the good guy in this story right? Well, I mean, he and Esther are, are, are pretty amazing. And here he is doing what we would call civil disobedience. Here comes Haman, now the right-hand man of the king. He's supposed to bow down before him, and he's like, nope, I ain't having it. Why? Well, actually, the Bible does not say. Now, there's a lot of guesses. He mentions that somehow it has to do with him being a Jew. So we have a guess that is likely an ethnic conflict, it is a, you're of those people, I'm of these people, we don't get along, I don't bow down to you. Now, scholars then guess that the lineage of the Agagites is connected to the lineage of the Amalekites. Why does that matter? Well, way back in the Jewish history, they have a famous period of time that we all know, like the Ten Commandments, Moses' time, you know, going through the Red Sea and all that stuff. When they go through and they enter into 40 years of wandering in the desert, they come across the Amalekite people. The Amalekite people were supposed to be helpful. They were kind of quasi-Jews. They were supposed to be partners. And they sought Israel's harm. God cursed them and said, forever after, you guys are cursed. So the Jews were like, mm -mm, we don't hang out with you. So the Amalekites versus the Jews. Is that what's going on here? Maybe. It's not clear. But for some reason... Mordecai felt justified in civil disobedience. Now, let me pause for a moment on that. What we try to do here from this pulpit at Bridgeway is a little bit different, maybe, than, than some places you've gone to. We are actually an equipping or a teaching church, so we tend to lean more into the teaching side than sometimes the preaching side, and there's a reason for that. We try to over-explain things so that you know how to do what we know how to do. Does that make sense? Because... Contrary to popular opinion, I will not follow you home, right? Like, I'm not going to commit everyone's like, you know what would be cool? That maybe Pastor Lance just did devotions for us tonight. That would be really nice. He could put the kids to bed, and he could just read to us. That would be really nice. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so my job is to equip you or train you to do what I do so you can do it anywhere you go. You got your own Bible. You're reading through it. So I'm going to give you some interpretive skills along the way. Here's one of them. You might want to write this down. When it comes to narrative... And a narrative is merely a story. Esther is a story. It's true, but it's a story. 
When it comes to narrative, the Bible is more descriptive than prescriptive. What does that mean? It tells you what happened, not what should have happened. Now, this is very, very important because a lot of times when we jump around in our Bibles, we'll go from a book like Romans that is Paul laying out a solid theology, telling you what to believe, telling you what to do, and then we jump into Esther and we go, Mordecai's a good guy. I guess I should duplicate his life. Uh, Hold up. The Bible in stories tells you what happened, not always what should have happened. The Bible does not tell you whether or not he should have bowed down or he shouldn't have bowed down. So sometimes we're like, man, I can be civilly disobedient too. Sweet, Mordecai did it. I can do it. Okay, hold on. The Bible doesn't say that that was a good idea. You're like, yeah, but God used it. Hold on. God uses our sin as well. That's not an indicator. It's a good idea. When I'm talking about descriptive versus prescriptive, think of it this way. The father of all the Jewish people is Abraham. Two times in his story, he lies about his wife and puts her life in danger. The Bible never seems to blatantly say whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. Does that mean we're all supposed to duplicate the father of our faith, Abraham, in every way that he acted? No, that was still a bad idea. Sometimes it's called out, like with King David. Sometimes it's not, like Noah. There's a story where Noah got so drunk that he ended up naked and something went down weird with his son and his son got cursed. There's nothing in the Bible that says he shouldn't have got that drunk. Can't we just assume that was a bad choice? Right? The Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive when it comes to stories. It just records what happened. All right. But the main guy we're going to focus on is Haman. This is a very dysfunctional man. And you're going to notice that because of how he reacted. So he is offended by Mordecai's refusal to bow down to him. Should he have been offended? Probably. I mean, this is how the system works. I'm the big dog. You bow down before me. We're all cool, right? So yes, he was allowed to have an offense. But here's the major question. Wasn't he a little too offended? All right, let's talk about you and I's life. You will have offenses in this life. But does your reaction seem a little bit extreme to you? Like, yes, you were offended, but maybe you're too offended. You see, Haman's offense was exaggerated because of his pride. He thought he was all that, and how dare you not bow down to me? That says way more about Haman than it does about Mordecai right? So start asking yourself as you analyze throughout the next couple weeks, listen, what they did to me was wrong, but is my reaction over the top? Am I actually allowing what they did to me to ruin my world? Why am I giving that much power to that? Why am I giving that much power to that person? They don't have the right to do that, right? Are we getting too offended. Now, the reason why is that Haman's identity was locked up in his status and what people thought of him. When that is your basis for your identity, you are in trouble and you're on a very sketchy foundation. How about us? Your identity is who you think you are and why you think you're like that. Your identity is who you think you are, why you think you're like that. 
Do you put your identity in your job? That you are something. Do you put your identity in what other people think about you? If you do that, you're going to continually get wrecked because people are not trustworthy like that. They don't have the ability to judge you properly. They don't have a healthy enough spirit to say what you're worth or what you're not worth. So if we are putting our identity in what other people think of us and what we do for a living, and all of a sudden that falls down, we fall down. So what's your identity in? If you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, if you are a legit believer, here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus Christ bought and provided a new identity for you, whether you believe it or not. I'm going to tell you what that identity is like, but I am here to tell you clearly it is you, whether or not you feel it's true or not. Because the Bible says that when Jesus Christ rescued you and saved you, you became a new creation. It means the old one died and is gone. A new one has emerged, and that new one has a whole different reality. You may not feel it. You may not be comfortable in it. That does not mean it is not true about you. As a matter of fact, when Jesus saves us, we are shifted from mere creations of God to become children of God. His righteousness is our reality. We are suddenly pure in the sight of God, not because we earned it, but because God gave it to us. I'm going to read out a, a list here of things that are true about your identity as a child of God, and you may say, that doesn't feel right to me. All right. C.S. Lewis wrote about it like this. He said, it's kind of like little kids that try on their parents' clothes. They don't fit. But the older they get and the more they mature, they start to fit, and then they just seem normal. They're just like clothes. You see, you may try these on today, and you go, boy, that feels awkward. Trust me, as you grow, they're going to start to fit, and you're going to believe me, because they're in the Word of God, and His Word is true. Amen? All right, so what we're going to do is I'm going to read a list of what is true about you, and I'm not saying you have to amen out loud. Some of you have the gift of the Amish. <laughs> Some of you, like you've got a little baby internal, amen. It's going to shoot out, right? It's going to be awesome, but you can just do that right up in your head if you need that. The rest of you that are able to vocalize, you got to be with me here, all right? If you agree with these statements, you say amen. We are now, because of Jesus, full of grace, not full of performance. Amen? We are deeply known. We are not strangers. We are blessed. We are not broke. Amen? We are purposeful. We are not wandering. We are supernatural, not merely natural. We are future focused. We are not trapped in the past. We are confident, not timid. We are precious, not worthless. In other words, we are protected, empowered, and whole. Amen? Amen. That is who God says you are. Amen? Now, the rest of your life, you may be trying to try that on and trying to believe that about yourself, trying to believe that about God. I'm telling you, when you get done with your journey, you're going to realize that's true. You're going to realize you are of infinite value. You're going to realize that you are forgiven and cleansed. You're going to realize you're walking in grace. You're going to realize you have been given authority and power. You're going to realize you're a child of God. That's what you're going to find out. I would love to cut to the chase and you believe that today. Yeah? And then try to wear on those clothes. I'm going to give you six reasons why a solid Christian identity is so important in your life. You may want to write these down. Six reasons why a solid Christian identity is important in your life. 
Number one, we can interact with God rightly. We can interact with God rightly. There's a big difference between running away from God and running towards God. There's a big difference between feeling like a slave of God and a child of God. There's a big difference between calling him the man upstairs and calling him Abba Father. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have a different relationship once we understand our new reality. That's number one. Number two, a clear identity allows instant obedience. It allows instant obedience. When our identity is not rock solid in Jesus, every time he whispers for us to do something, we have to go through our dysfunctional checklist first. What do I mean? I mean, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit whispers to you and says, hey, I want you to go buy that guy lunch. Your first response is, Lord, that's weird. (laughs) Second one, Lord, this is my money. Third one, Lord, he thinks I'm going to hit on him. Fourth, and we go through this list, list, list. We still haven't said yes to him yet. But when you are rock solid in your identity with Jesus, you know who you are. You don't have to play those games because it doesn't really matter what he thinks. It matters what your heavenly father thinks. And so you're all about the task at hand. And you go up to him and say, hey, God told me to buy you lunch. Can I buy you lunch? Well, I don't know. Are you hitting on me? I don't think so. I'm just telling you, God told me to do it, and that's really on him. I don't have to carry that around. I don't have to figure out that your response is going to somehow define my identity. I can just do what my Jesus tells me to do. I'm good. Number three, we cannot lead rightly when we're addicted to affirmation. We cannot lead rightly when we are addicted to affirmation. Why? If you care too much about what I think, you can't lead me rightly. Your leadership's been compromised. Why? Because I can manipulate you with my response. Do we or do we not want to be leaders in this world to lead someone to our Jesus? But if you care too much about what other people think, it's really hard to lead them well. Number four, we can be generous both in finances and love. We can be generous in both finances and love. Why? Because there's always more coming. I got no problem wasting love on you that you do not appreciate because I got a shipment coming in tomorrow. You understand what I mean? I got no problem giving things away because my God makes up money out of nowhere and just suddenly replenishes. Okay, when you live in that sort of reality that you have a reservoir that is constantly flowing through you, you don't worry about what you have to give away. Number five, we can forgive. We can forgive. I believe that without God, forgiveness is almost impossible. It is one of the hardest things we will ever do. Why? Because we, we have to go through the list in our minds. Lord, they're not worthy of it. What do you think his response is? Of course not. That's not the point. But Lord, then they're going to get away with it. And that behavior is only going to be enabled. Well, hold on. I'm working with them. You're not in charge of them. Yeah, but Lord, then they're going to think this about me. Stop. I need you set free, my child. I'll deal with them later. But you carrying it around your neck all these years is not working for us. Right? Number six, we can live abundantly. We can live abundantly. Once again, with the idea that there is always an overflow, you don't live in the idea of scarcity 
that you can pray big prayers, you can do big ministry. Why? Because God's able and you're not afraid. Our soul is to be satisfied by God alone. But Haman was ruined by one offense. Does a human being have the ability to remove your joy? They shouldn't. Right? Shouldn't you be able to own your joy? Shouldn't it be between you and God? Shouldn't you be able to keep things out here a little bit more? Are you going to get hurt? Yes. Are you going to be offended? Yes. But does that mean you allow Satan to keep his foot on your neck? Does that mean what? You lose all your peace? You lose all your joy? You lose all this stuff because somebody was horrible to you? They don't get to run the rest of your life. You're taking them home with you. They've moved on. They're doing something else. And you keep punching yourself in the face. Don't do Satan's job for him. At some point, we need to say, you know what? They were wrong. But my God has me. And I will move forward. Side note on friends. Notice in the story that at first, Haman didn't even notice that Mordecai didn't bow down. There's lots of people bowing down. He's walking around. He was like, I'm all that, and everyone's bowing down. And then all of a sudden, some guys come to him. They're like, hey, dude, what? That guy right there? He doesn't bow down to you. Really? Why? I don't know. He's like a Jew or something. So what does that have to do with it? He ain't having it. Like, seriously, walk by him. Go walk by him right now. Watch. Oh, look, he didn't. Ah, I told you. Be careful of friends that are bringing up offenses in front of you. What do I mean? The Holy Spirit could have blinded you from the offense at the beginning, and now what? Your friend's going to come up and go, did you see how she looked at you? Seriously? Did you see what she looked? You didn't see that? Oh, we all saw it. Hold on. Maybe God protected me from that, and now what? You're Satan to bring it up to me? I don't need more offense. I don't need more issues. Maybe I was supposed to just kind of move on in my day, but now you're bringing it up to me. Now I got to carry that slime. And if you're that friend that's doing that, stop doing that. That's not a friend. Because when you have friends that are triggering your insecurity all the time, they're not good friends. We got to have a plan. We got to have a plan that somehow we're going to go from dysfunction to function, and it's not going to happen doing nothing. It's not going to happen on accident. We got to figure out what is our plan? How are we going to move forward? Right? Because we can heal. But Haman didn't hear the sermon, so it went bad. Here we go. Let's pick it up in verse six. Listen to this line. It's a little complicated, but when you hear the gravity of it, it's insane. Verse six. But Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. What does that mean? Well, look. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of King Xerxes. What one Jew dying was not enough. I want to kill them all. How much dysfunction leads to that decision? I was offended by that one guy. Wait, where you come from? I hate everyone like you. Goodness gracious, that is some serious dysfunction, yeah? 
We're nine years into the story of Esther. Remember I told you I was going to do little time markers? We are nine years into the story. And this guy has decided he wants to kill all Jews. I want to talk for a moment about this ethnic issue, and I'm going to kill these people. And Okay, I want to talk for a moment about prejudice, race, racism, things like that. Okay, if you're a human being, you are going to be offended by someone of a different ethnicity or group than you. It's going to happen. What you must not do then is project on everyone that is like them that they're all like that. And here's why. Real quick side note, total revelation, I am a white Caucasian non-Latino. Just letting you guys know that, okay? Cool, you don't have to write it down, you're gonna have a constant reminder. Okay, I have been offended by white Caucasian non-Latinos before. At no point did I say, I wonder if they all hate me. Because I am one. Does that make sense? If I'm not gonna do it with my group, why would I do it to someone else's group? Just because they're different than me does not mean I get to stereotype or project on how they all are because they're different than me. That's not how it works. We've got to root that kind of stuff out because otherwise Satan wins, right? We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Let's pick it up in verse eight. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your region. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws. There is no profit to the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, his authorization, and gave it to Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also do with them as seems good to you. What a horrible response. Oh, you want to kill a people group? You want to commit genocide? Sure. Here's my ring. You see, nothing could be issued in the Persian kingdom without the king's signature. He hands him carte blanche signature authorization to go eliminate a people group. He doesn't ask who the people group is. He doesn't do any of that stuff. He says, yes. Now, let's talk about the motivation and how Haman sold this horrible plan. Notice that for Haman, everything was about dollars, and he knew that the king cared about dollars, so he sold him on the financial aspect. What did he say? There is a people group. They don't do anything good. They are no profit to you. I think you should kill them all. How does he then sell it? I will give you a huge amount of money if you let me do so. Do you know how much money he's willing to give? How much is 10,000 talents of silver? Does anybody know that? 10 years ago, it was estimated in today's dollars, $15 million. He's willing to give $15 million of his own cash into the Persian Empire to eliminate the Jews. This guy is absolutely psycho, right? Huh. Why would the king authorize it? Why would he say he wants to kill them all? Because 
they're no longer people to him. They're just statistics. No matter what you do for a living, it is very tempting to look at people as stats on a sheet. But please don't ever do that. If you're in the financial industry, sometimes all you see is dollars, markers, but those are lives. If you're in the service industry, you're looking at how many clients can I get? Those clients have families. Those clients have real lives. They're not for us to use or abuse or manipulate. That is not what it's about. Behind every stat is a life that Jesus Christ died on the cross for. We do not get to just make people statistics. But do you understand that the only way we can sin with any type of justification is if we dehumanize the people around us? You can't actively sin when they are just like you. So we have to mess it up in our heads. When we gossip, we say this. Hey, can I tell you a story? It's not a story. You're just pushing it away from you so you can do what you want to do. What you should say is, hey, can I share a bit of information that might ruin someone's life? Is that cool? <laughs> Hopefully your friend would say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. But we don't say that. Hey, man, have you heard this? Can I tell you this? Can I right? That's all we're doing. We're distancing it. Right? In the exact same way, when there's road rage on the streets... We, what, somebody cut us off, you are a doot, 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 right? We're just going to fill in that gap, and you're a nuisance, and you should never be on the road, and you're a worthless human being, and we just start going off and dehumanizing them. You didn't even think, maybe that lady just, what, lost her job? She has no idea how she's going to feed her children. Her mind is somewhere else, and she just happened to change lanes without signaling. It was not a personal attack on you. It was a misread. But nope, we're going to dehumanize her. How does she doesn't even deserve to live that she cut you off? Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm sorry, who do you think you are? What, you're going to be the judge of whether someone lives or dies, has meaning or not? Because you're angry? Ah. We have a second problem, and that is not only Haman's evilness, but the king's rash decision. Why would he just say yes? He didn't even think through it. He has no idea who this impacts. All right, cool. You want to kill them all? That's fine. His lack of thoughtfulness made him easy to manipulate. So Haman used him for his agenda. You want to make this personal? Do you realize people are trying to use you for their agenda? Do you realize that? And if you are not thinking through what you're doing, you're easy pickings. Okay, and you go, well, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't think I really, this really applies to me. All right, hold on. Have you ever forwarded something online that you did not was, know was 100% true? Okay, you're feeding into this. You did not look through it. You don't know if it's true or not. Oh, well, I trusted the person that sent it to me. Yeah, they weren't thinking either. So they decided to hand it to you, and you decided to hand it to somewhere else. Somehow, you guys, misinformation, no matter what issue, is all over the internet. Why? Because well-meaning people are propagating it. You're getting played. You're getting used. We've got to watch this. You actually have to read through and figure out if it's legit because you're signing God's name to it. 
No, I'm not. I'm just saying that I thought that was an interesting article. You're an ambassador for the kingdom of God. What, and you're cool? Just go ahead and handing things out that may or may not be accurate? You can't do that. We're Christians. We don't do that. We look through. Well, I don't got time for that. Oh, okay, hold up. I would say that the majority of us have good hearts. I would also say the majority of us are very busy. Let me read you a quote from Gary Collins, a Christian psychologist. He said this, one of the greatest enemies of integrity is a lack of time. Many of us are too busy to think about moral questions. We find it easier and quicker to go with our instincts, follow a persuasive leader, or move with the crowd. When there's not time to think about right and wrong, we don't arrive at clear standards for living, and without standards, we can't live with integrity. If you're too busy to be thoughtful, don't make the decision. Because we're allowing Satan to lie, and we're getting behind him. And I don't even care what the issue is. Truth is truth, lie is lie. That's it. Maybe you know the truth and I'm living, whatever, it doesn't matter. All I'm telling you is be thoughtful because otherwise you're going to get played and someone else is going to use you for their agenda. Hmm. Due diligence is important. Let me go back to that issue where I was talking about prejudice for a moment. Do you realize that the majority of prejudice, and I'm not talking about racism, I'm talking about prejudice. Prejudice is I have a negative sense about a group of people that ultimately I think that they're different than me and I am superior to them because I don't understand them and so I have feelings about them that are negative. All right, do you realize the majority of prejudice in this world does not come from a mean heart? It comes from a lack of healthy experience and a lack of information. Literally, you haven't had engagement to be able to change your opinion. It's not because you're evil. It's not because you're bad. And like I told you, we all have prejudice. It's because you're limited in experience. So how do we root it out? We are open to healthy interactions with people that are different from us, and we listen more than we talk. That's how you fix it, right? We can do that. Let me give you an example that is much more tame, and I've already been in your business too long, right? So let me give you an easy one. Imagine that somebody young said, I think all old people don't want me to have fun, right? Now, when I say old, I'm talking 40 and over, <laughs> all right? To a young person, you're old. All right? And here's how they know that old people don't want them to have any fun, because when their music was too loud, they told them to turn it down. Well, I enjoy music loud, that's why I turned it up, and now you're telling me to turn it down. What in the world is your problem? You don't want me to enjoy my day. Then they talk to their friends, and their friends are like, you know what? Old people tell me that too. I think that it's a conspiracy. I don't think any old people like to enjoy anything. They certainly don't like to enjoy music. And just because they hate music doesn't mean my life has to be terrible. And then all of a sudden they talk with a friend who happens to have a super good relationship with their grandparents. 
They go out to breakfast and they're hanging out and they're talking about, man, back in my day, you know, we were rolling with the Beatles and we had all this kind of stuff going on and I love music and, and I've always loved music. And, you know, when I'm at home and grandpa's not there, I like crank it up, you know what I'm saying? Like that's grandma, you know, and, and the idea, so it starts talking and everything's relatable. And that young person says, hold on, that is not true about all old people. As a matter of fact, mine are legit. I love my grandparents. Do you understand you just busted the prejudice line? Because you had real experience, real information, and now there was more of an understanding. You guys, this is not rocket science. The more limited we are in our world, the more we fear what is different. Ah. I'm going to finish out and just paraphrase the rest of the, the chapter here. So Haman decides on a plan to kill all the Jews. Here is his plan. He issues an edict out to the whole Persian kingdom that says, quote, you are being called to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This psycho launches the purge on one day that everyone in the kingdom is to kill all Jews and take all their stuff. This is madness, right? It's got the day listed out. One man's offense turned into a genocide, turned into this purge thing, turned into this weird, creepy world. What do we do to defend ourselves from this? Well, I'm gonna give you two quick tools. The first one, you gotta know yourself. You gotta know who you are because if you don't know what's going on with you, you're gonna bleed dysfunction all over the place. And I get it, some leaders poo-poo, self-diagnostic. Well, I don't wanna take a personality test. I don't wanna take this test. Okay, you know what? If it helps you know you and how God made you, I want you to do it. Why? Because the more you know about you, the less ignorance is driving your decisions. And I want you to be able to look inside. Remember I told you, admitting that you're human and frail and broken and make mistakes, there's grace for that. Your identity is solid in the Lord. It's okay to look at the yuck. It doesn't shame you. It doesn't ruin you. It's something to work on. So we want to know what is going on. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What am I good? What am I bad? That way I can put a plan together to figure out how to address it. And then the second thing that I would do is you would keep in mind continually the enemy is lying to you on purpose. The enemy is lying to you on purpose. If you have ever felt this, this phrase is true, God doesn't love me, you're being lied to. The Bible is clear that God so loved the world. So no matter who you are, where you're coming from, the answer is yes, God loves you. Anything else is a lie from the pit of hell. Stop the lies, know yourself, and I kid you not, it's gonna allow the Holy Spirit to start doing a whole bunch of cool internal work in your life. One of the best things to do is do what we're doing right now, and that's soaking in the Word of God, yeah? Let's get a bunch of truth in there. All right, I'm gonna close out by praying for us. And I'll pray for two groups of people. One, is there some of you that may not have ever allowed Jesus to transform your life. You've never said, yes, Jesus, everything you did on the cross, I want that grace, that forgiveness. Lord, take my life. 
All I've been doing is living for me, and I don't want to do that anymore. You're listening to me talk about this new identity and all the glories of that and all the secure identities, and you're jealous. Well, I'm here to tell you Jesus has a wide open stance going, just come to me. I want to make you a kid right now. That's the first group. Second group is there's a bunch of us Christians that are still being directed by our dysfunction. We got a lot of hurt we need to heal, right? I'm not telling you that what they did to you or what you did was right. I'm telling you, yes, it hurt, but it doesn't get to rule your life, right? Let's pray about that stuff. Heavenly Father, in this holy moment, there are some of us that need you to rescue us for the first time. Right now, Lord, we lift up our hearts to you and we say, yes, God. I don't know what it means. I don't know how it all works. All I know is that pastor is talking about starting over again and a clean slate and a healed life and no more baggage and freed from my past. And Lord, I need all that. I give you my life. I don't think it's worth a whole lot, but I give it all to you and I surrender to you and I say, Lord, make me something more than I am today. God, would you rescue me and save me? And Lord, there's some of us that, that we know you, we have you, Holy Spirit, in our lives, and yet we're still being directed so much by our dysfunction. So in the name of Jesus, we lift up our crooked past to you. And we ask in the name of Jesus, it would be broken and made straight. Lord, we lift up our terrible memories about what was abused in us. And we ask, Lord, that you would lead us down pathways of healing and therapy and restoration and goodness. We lift up to you, Lord, all the things that we know that we've done wrong, that we shudder to think about, and we receive your forgiveness. We receive your cleansing. We receive your start over again. And we say yes to you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we come against all that is making us unforgiving. And we say right now, yes, Lord, to you and your forgiveness. We forgive those who have wounded us. We forgive those that have trespassed against us as you have set us free. Lord, we don't want all the wounds of our past to guide us anymore. And so, Lord, direct us into a place of healing and restoration. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.